There is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves, or lose our ventures. Prologue In every club there is a club bore. The Coronation Club was no exception, and the fact that an air raid was in progress made no difference to normal procedure. Major Porter, late Indian Army, rustled his newspaper and cleared his throat. Everyone avoided his eye, but it was no use. "'I see they've got the announcement of Gordon Clode's death in the Times,' he said. "'Discreetly put, of course. On October the 5th, result of enemy action. No address given. As a matter of fact, it was just round the corner from my little place, one of those big houses on top of Camden Hill. I can tell you it shook me up a bit. I'm a warden, you know.' Claude had only just got back from the States. He'd been over on that government purchase business. Got married while he was over there. A young widow. Young enough to be his daughter. Mrs. Underhay. As a matter of fact, I knew her first husband out in Nigeria. Major Porter paused. Nobody displayed any interest or asked him to continue. Newspapers were held up sedulously in front of faces, but it took more than that to discourage Major Porter. He always had long histories to relate, mostly about people whom nobody knew. "'Interesting,' said Major Porter firmly, his eyes fixed absently on a pair of extremely pointed patent-leather shoes, a type of footwear of which he profoundly disapproved. "'As I said, I'm a warden. Funny business, this blast. Never know what it's going to do. Blew the basement in and ripped off the roof. First floor practically wasn't touched. Six people in the house.' Three servants, married couple, and a housemaid, Gordon Clode, his wife, and the wife's brother. They were all down in the basement except the wife's brother. Ex-commando fellow. He preferred his own comfortable bedroom on the first floor, and by Jove he escaped with a few bruises. The three servants were all killed by blast. Gordon Clode must have been worth well over a million. Again Major Porter paused. His eyes had travelled up from the patent leather shoes, striped trousers, black coat, egg-shaped head, and colossal moustaches. "'Foreign, of course. That explained the shoes. "'Really,' thought Major Porter, "'what's the club coming to? Can't get away from foreigners even here!' This separate train of thought ran alongside his narrative. The fact that the foreigner in question appeared to be giving him full attention did not abate Major Porter's prejudice in the slightest. Oh, "'She can't be more than about twenty-five, he went on, "'and a widow for the second time, or at any rate, that's what she thinks.' He paused, hoping for curiosity for comment. Not getting it, he nevertheless went doggedly on. Matter of fact, I've got my own ideas about that. Queer business. As I told you, I knew her first husband, Underhay. Nice fellow. District commissioner in Nigeria at one time. Absolutely dead keen on his job. First-class chap. He married this girl in Cape Town. She was out there with some touring company. Very down on her luck, and pretty and helpless and all that. Listened to poor old Underhay raving about his district and the great wide-open spaces, and breathed out— wasn't it wonderful, and how she wanted to get away from everything? Well, she married him and got away from it. He was very much in love, poor fellow. But the thing didn't tick over from the first. She hated the bush and was terrified of the natives and was bored to death. Her idea of life was to go round to the local and meet the theatrical crowd and talk shop. Solitude ad deux in the jungle wasn't her cup of tea at all. Mind you, I never met her myself. I heard all this from poor old Underhay. It hit him pretty hard. He did the decent thing, sent her home, and agreed to give her a divorce. It was just after that I met him. He was all on edge and in the mood when a man's got to talk. 
He was a funny, old-fashioned kind of chap in some ways, an R.C., and he didn't care for divorce. He said to me, "'There are other ways of giving a woman her freedom. Now look here, old boy,' I said. "'Don't go doing anything foolish. No woman in the world is worth putting a bullet through your head.' He said that that wasn't his idea at all. "'But I'm a lonely man,' he said. "'Got no relations to bother about me. If a report of my death gets back, that will make Rosaline a widow, which is what she wants.' "'Well, what about you?' I said. Well, he said, maybe a Mr. Enoch Arden will turn up somewhere a thousand miles or so away and start life anew. Might be awkward for her some day. I warned him. Oh, no, he says, I'd play the game. Robert Underhay would be dead all right. Well, I, I didn't think any more of it. But six months later, I heard that Underhay had died of fever up in the bush somewhere. His natives were a trustworthy lot, and they came back with a good circumstantial tale and a few last words scrawled in Underhay's writing, saying they'd done all they could for him, and he was afraid he was pegging out and praising up his headman. That man was devoted to him, and so were all the others. Whatever he told them to swear to, they would swear to. So, there it is. Maybe Underhay's bedded up country in the midst of equatorial Africa, but maybe he isn't. And if he isn't, Mrs. Gordon Claude may get a shock one day, and serve her right, I say. I never met her, but I know the sound of a little gold digger. She broke up poor old Underhay, all right. It's an interesting story. Major Porter looked round rather wistfully for confirmation of this assertion. He met two bored and fishy stares, the half-averted gaze of young Mr. Mellon, and the polite attention of Monsieur Hercule Poirot. Then the newspaper rustled, and a grey-haired man with a singularly impassive face rose quietly from his armchair by the fire and went out. Major Porter's jaw dropped, and young Mr. Mellon gave a faint whistle. "'Now you've done it,' he remarked. "'Know who that was?' "'God bless my soul,' said Major Porter, in some agitation. "'Of course. I don't know him intimately, but we are acquainted. "'Jeremy Claude, isn't it?' "'Gordon Claude's brother. Upon my word, how extremely unfortunate. If I'd had any idea—' "'He's a solicitor,' said young Mr. Mellon. "'Bet he sues you for slander or defamation of character or something.' For young Mr. Mellon enjoyed creating alarm and despondency in such places, as it was not forbidden by the Defence of the Realm Act. Major Porter continued to repeat, in an agitated manner, "'Most unfortunate! Most unfortunate!' "'It'll be all over Wormsley Heath by this evening,' said Mr. Mellon. "'That's where all the clothes hang out. "'They'll sit up late discussing what action to take.' But at that moment the all-clear sounded, and young Mr. Mellon stopped being malicious and tenderly piloted his friend Hercule Poirot out into the street. "'Terrible atmosphere, these clubs,' he said. "'The most crashing collection of old bores. "'Porter's easily the worst, though. "'His description of the Indian rope trick takes three-quarters of an hour.' and he knows everybody whose mother had ever passed through Pune. This was the autumn of 1944. 